You are now listening to a podcast by Sanofi, led by Norwegian brain scientist and best-selling author Ole Petter Gjelle. Smoldering MS is used to describe a specific process that happens in people living with MS. Professor Gavin Giovannoni, or Professor G, is a specialist in neurology, and he calls smoldering MS the real MS. Today, he is with us in the studio to explain why. Welcome, Gavin, and thank you for taking the time to be with us in the studio today. My pleasure. Glad to be with you. So let's get right to it. What is smoldering MS, and when does it start? So smoldering uh, MS refers to uh, a clinical observation. It's essentially what we look at and see in uh, primary progressive MS. But we now begin to realize that that slow deterioration in functioning that occurs without superimposed relapses or MRI activity. I'm talking about new lesions on MRI. That's uh, new gadolinium-enhancing lesions or new T2 or enlarging new T2 lesions. Um, it's probably present in all MS types. Um, you know, so it doesn't only happen in primary progressive disease or in so-called non-relapsing secondary progressive disease. We now begin to identify this process uh, in people with early MS, relapsing forms of MS. So it's there in all types uh, of MS. So that's why I refer to uh, as smoldering. It's this gradual deterioration in functioning that appears to be occurring um, independent of relapses or MRI activity. And how early in the disease progress does this start? It occurs before people are even diagnosed because we now have groups of people with radiologically isolated syndrome. So these are people that are diagnosed as having MS on their brain scans, on their MRI scans, um, even on lumbar puncture, we pick up the fingerprint of MS in the spinal fluid, the oligoclonal IgG bands. And if you follow those people, they have got evidence of smoldering pathology. They've got uh, gradual brain volume loss, about a quarter of them will have uh, cognitive impairment. Even if you do subtle tests on them, you, pu- you pick up deterioration. So this process actually begins right from what you think the beginning of MS, and it is MS. And so uh, the idea that it starts later on in the course of the disease is is incorrect. It's there from the very beginning of the disease process, setting off in the central nervous system. So so these findings can even precede clinical symptoms? Yes. I mean, I don't know. I mean, very topical. There's just this paper that's just been published by Alberto Scherer's group in science, what they did was they took uh, people who had MS and they were managed to go back and get samples. This is a military in the US veterans. And they managed to get them way back before they developed any symptoms were diagnosed. And they actually found using a biomarker in the blood, neurofilament, which is a damage marker. As you damage neurons and axons, you release neurofilaments. They showed that these levels went up long before people were diagnosed. So if you're looking at that process of neuronal damage, it occurs before before people present with their first symptoms or get diagnosed. So it's there from the very beginning. You have been known to say that smoldering MS is the real MS. What, according to you, is the unmet need when it comes to smoldering MS? So the reason why I say the real MS is because we are blinkered. We focus all our attention on relapses and MRI activity. And even when we suppress relapses and MRI activity with some of our most effective anti-inflammatory disease-modifying treatments, 
we don't stop smoldering processes. So people continue to lose brain volume, they continue to deteriorate, they continue to uh, have subtle signs of worsening. So by getting rid of the inflammatory, we, we're not stopping that process. And that's why I call the real MS. The other clue is relapses and MRI activity are incredibly poor predictors. They're very poor predictors of long-term outcome. So regardless of what happens to those, people can do well or badly independently of relapses. And, you know, when you apply philosophical uh, ration, uh, uh, thinking and, and rationale to MS, you're going to realize if multiple sclerosis was relapses and MRI activity, they should predict not only treatment response to therapies, but outcome and they don't. So I think when we try and apply um, philosophical tests, um, you soon become apparent that relapses and MRI activity can't be MS. So what is MS is the underlying process because that predicts poor outcome. So people who have evidence of smoldering pathology on their brain, be it slowly expanding lesions, uh, be it uh, accelerated or active brain volume loss, or they're getting worse clinically, those are much better predictors of long-term outcome. Those are highly predictive of long-term outcome. So that's why I call that the real limits, and that's the unmet need. Yes, so we want to obviously go and uh, stop people having relapses and MRI activity because they cause problems. Do you feel there's not enough attention around these uh, the smoldering MS um, in the field? Yes and no. I think we as an MS community all identify smoldering MS as being a big problem. The issue, though, is if you bring it up with people who have the disease with patients, we don't really have evidence to, to um, modify this process. So by making people aware that they've got accelerated brain loss, they've got these slowly expanding lesions, they've got all these processes going on, it's difficult because they'll say, what are you going to do about it? And we'll say, well, we don't have any treatments for it right now, but you know, we want you to go into clinical trials. And I think that's probably where we are at the moment. We should be identifying it, making people aware that we need to go beyond inflammation. And then we have to develop a whole new series of therapy, a whole new armamentarium of therapies to target these processes. So regarding therapeutic opportunities, what do we know about the pathological mechanisms driving smoldering MS today? Well, I think there are multiple mechanisms. So obviously, when you've got focal inflammation and you go in there and you damage the nervous system, or whatever causes the focal inflammation damage the nervous system, um, it, it cuts axons, uh, and some of the axons don't get cut. They get stripped of their myelin and they are demyelinated. And those axons then become vulnerable to degenerate um, because you recover conduction via a process called axonal plasticity where you insert sodium channels that, that reconstitutes the conduction uh, down them. Um, so in that acute process, you've got therapeutic strategies to try and protect those axons while they remyelinate. We obviously got to promote remyelination. But there's also an energy deficit. So, you know, is there anything we can do to enhance and improve energy uh, you know, the supply of energy. And there are strategies looking at energetics. Some people think high-dose high oxygen will work. The other side of that, what happens up front is over time, the innate immune system within the central nervous system, this is the so-called microglia and macrophage component, gets switched on and they probably grumble, cause grumbling inflammation. And so there is this thing called the hot microglial hypothesis. Should we be giving therapies to dampen down microglia to stop them producing a whole lot of chemical and inflammatory mediators that continue to drive um, a vicious cycle that causes these nerve fibers to die off? 
with that. And then there's also um, a theory that maybe MS is caused by viruses, so by you know, within the central nervous system, there could be uh, viruses. Epstein-Barr virus may be upstream and it triggers and activates things called endogenous retroviruses. And they produce envelope proteins and other proteins that act as super antigens and drive up innate immunity. So, you know, maybe suppressing these viruses with antivirals may dampen down the inflammatory response. So there is a series of trials running now, mainly investigator-led, looking at antivirals in MS. And the other thing that's critical is what protects us from getting age-related neurodegeneration, because at the end of the day, life is a neurodegenerative disease. By the time you get into your, you know, from about 35 onwards, you start losing brain volume and you start seeing the effects of aging on the nervous system. That is brought forward by MS because MS reduces not only cognitive but brain reserve, size of the brain. And those are what protect you from age-related mechanisms. So the premature aging is another issue. And that's why as part of this process of tackling smoldering MS is also to uh, promote things that encourage brain health. And I think outside of MS, exercise, good sleep, all these things are uh, linked to... um, uh, improving brain health, which actually acts as a resilience factor. It helps buffer the impact of MS on the brain. So there's quite a lot of mechanisms uh, involved, but the ones that are specific to MS are essentially demyelination. Can we remyelinate, demyelinate axons? Can we uh, neuroprotect those damaged axons and stop them from dying off? Can we switch off innate immunity, stop those hot microglia continuing to damage myelin? Um, Can we inhibit potentially endogenous viruses or, uh, that are promoting inflammation? Uh, and, then, and then can we uh, uh, drug anti-aging mechanisms? Uh, those are the kinds of things we're thinking of at the moment. How could neurologists address smoldering disease interactions with patients? And maybe more specifically, what kind of questions should be asked to detect subtle disease worsening or disability accumulation? Now, the first, of, first of all, I think neurologists should give patients the benefit of the doubt. You know, one of the things I've noticed, because I'm quite engaged in social media, um, you know, we as neurologists tend to focus on relapses and MRI activity, and some of us uh, do uh, annual or measure disability progression using the EDSS score, expanded disability status score, which is incredibly crude. So I think the important thing was if patients come to you and they tell you they're getting worse, but you can't detect it using your clinical skills and your MRI, you shouldn't assume they're not getting worse because they probably know themselves better than you do. And I think what we have to go forward with is using more sensitive uh, tests to interrogate the nervous system. And so, you know, we are beginning to, and I think most MS centers now are beginning to incorporate more sensitive um, outcome measures. So this is walking time, um, uh, you know, cognitive screening tests, um, upper limb function tests like the non pec test. But there's lots more evolving. And also, we also should probably think about not doing them annually. We should probably do them more frequently because what's important is trajectory. So I like to think of this like uh, we probably need to stress the nervous system to pick up these abnormalities. And our current EDSS doesn't do that. So we should give people the benefit of the doubt. If they say they're getting worse, we should acknowledge it. Um, whether or not changing those people's treatment without showing uh, – uh, inflammatory events in the, with the current treatments is, I can't guarantee it's going to make any difference. But at least it brings out the discussion and hopefully it will prime those patients to go into trials, you know. 
You have touched upon this already in this question, but let's dive a little bit deeper into it. We know that conventional neurological examination is not sensitive enough or adequate to monitor patients' deterioration. What kind of other measurements could be performed to capture the clinical effects of smoldering MS, even early on in the disease course? Yes, so I think there are a lot of hidden, we call them hidden because we haven't actually looked for them. These are called hidden symptoms uh, and hidden hidden worsening. So um, the big one is cognitive function. And we know that people with multiple sclerosis, uh, the longer they've got the disease, the more cognitive impairment they've got. And that cognitive impairment is wor- it's worse. It gets worse with time. Uh, the thing about it is, is the brain's got so much reserve capacity that people compensate for it. And instead of complaining about cognitive symptoms, they complain about cognitive fatigue, for example. So they hide the symptom. So what we should be doing is much more um, uh, aggressive monitoring of cognition. Using screening tests, because we know in MS, the problem with multiple sclerosis is multitasking and cognitive reaction times. Uh, um, it does affect memory slightly, but it, you know the main problem is people with MS can't multitask. And so there are quite a few paradigms that test that. Patients find it stressful, but that's what we're trying to do. We try to bring out and test their function. And then we are, then we should probably automate uh, uh, and do uh, a lot more detailed uh, clinical assessments of neurological examination, for example. And then there's the things there's things called patient rate outcome measures. We haven't leveraged that enough. So PROMS actually are designed to to uh, interrogate people in their day to day functioning, and that's not picked up in our neurological examination. You know what happens with walking distances, for example. We've got wearables now, we've got smartphones that do it automatically. There's lots of very sensitive things out there that we haven't applied at a, at a clinical nor trial level to monitor the impact on OMS. And I think the important message is our disability score that we use, the EDSS, is really a walking, mainly you know, in, the, in the scale we use, where we use it, it's mainly a walking outcome measure. And clearly that's not good enough. We need to go beyond walking. Uh, very good and sensible tips to the neurologist listening. What can the neurologist and patients do to counteract the effects of smoldering MS? Well, the first thing is to think very difficult, very clearly about upfront treatments. So, you know, understanding that MS is more than relapses and MRI activity and telling patients this upfront, because uh, there's a hierarchy in terms, of this, just to give you an example, I personally think brain volume loss is particularly over a long period of time, integrates all the processes that cause damage in MS. So it's like the integrator of damage. This is about education, you see. So I'm telling you, you have to educate not only the healthcare professional, which this is about, but making sure that patients are aware of it. Then there are things that patients do or develop that actually make smoldering or MS worse. So I've already mentioned lifestyle issues. So people need to exercise, they need to have good sleep hygiene, they need to have good diets, they need to not drink too much alcohol. There are lots of things that they can do to optimize brain health, and that's not rocket science. We know that from the dementia field. But the important thing is, is how do we communicate it to patients in a way that makes them adopt um, a brain-healthy lifestyle? It's easier said than done. Well, it's at least comforting to see that based on the um, knowledge we have today, it seems like there are several potential targets and some marginal gains in several of them will uh, eventually lead to better results for MS patients. 
Yes, I mean, to be honest with you, we shouldn't, I mean, the smoldering concept has been there for a long, long time, but we shouldn't criticize ourselves too much because we've made an enormous difference to outcomes already by using anti-inflammatories. So the prognosis now is completely different to what it was 25 years ago with multiple sclerosis. But I think, you know, we've got to go beyond where we are now and we've got to go into the future and even improve outcomes even more because the disease is still pretty disabling, even though we are pretty effective at switching off inflammatory events, patients still, on average, don't do well long-term. This has been a really interesting talk, Gavin. Just to round it off, um, can you give us a few key takeaways for the clinicians, mainly general neurologists out there listening? First take-home message is that MS is probably a degenerative disease from the outset and the superimposed inflammatory events are secondary and dictate the clinical phenotype. So when we target MS, we've got to target this underlying neurodegenerative process. And hopefully by doing that, we switch off the immune response attached to it. We shouldn't just, we've got to shift our attention away from just relapses and MRI activity. We've got to go beyond that. So our, our target really is to protect the end organ. We've got to prevent end organ damage because at the end of the day, it's the size and health of the brain that determines long-term outcomes. So, you know, our therapeutic aim should to be should be to maximize the lifelong brain health of our patients to get them to old age, you know, with a healthy brain so they can age normally. I think that's where our therapeutic target. Um, probably the best time to target that process is very early on. So please focus on those early treatment decisions, waiting 10 or 15 years to, to try and uh, alter the natural history or the history of this disease is too late. So it's all about early effective interventions um, and encourage patients to participate in clinical trials, to be honest with you. You know, without patients going into trials, we won't improve outcomes because, you know, at the end of the day, we need an evidence base. Nobody's going to change the MS management without doing an evidence base. Thank you very much, Gavin. Your knowledge and insight into the MS field is fascinating and it's always a pleasure to have you here in the studio. So. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule and we hope to see you again here soon. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Sanofi. 